people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Many years, people have believed that Sherlock Holmes was the greatest detective in the world. But is it possible that there could exist another human being whose mental powers go even beyond those of the master? Hello, what's this? It's Sherlock Holmes' smarter brother. Starring Gene Wilder. Do you have a brother whose first name is Sherlock? I do not. You do have a brother? I do. Might I inquire as to his first name? Sheer luck. Madeline Kahn. I thought the sweetest little dimple in As Jenny Hill. How do you do? My name is Bessie Bellwood. Liar! Oh, you don't fool around, do you? Marty Feldman as a man with a photographic sense of hearing. Due to ill health, your brother has decided to take a short vacation in the country. Oh, not very long, two or three days at most, but he would very much appreciate, he would very much appreciate, he would very much appreciate, if you would handle one of his... A tale of amazing feats of deduction. Chadered. Unless I'm very much mistaken, chadered is the Egyptian word meaning to eat fat. Dom DeLuise as the king of all the blackmailers. None touch of the money! You got a lovely race. And you got a lovely The adventure of Sherlock Holmes' smarter brother. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Aaron Peterson. Hey, thanks for having me back. Also back in the booth is Mr. David McGregor. Lovely to be here again. Thank you. We continue our month of discussions around the 1970s interpretations of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's consulting detective Sherlock Holmes. On this episode, we are discussing 1975's The Adventure of Sherlock Holmes's Smarter Brother, written by, directed, and starring Gene Wilder. The film tells the tale of Sigerson Holmes, who I would say is not actually Sherlock's smarter brother. He's kind of adult, really. And I'm not sure if the title is supposed to be a joke or not, but we'll talk about that. And the 
Movie also stars some other familiar faces from Mel Brooks' troupe of actors, including Marty Feldman, Madeline Kahn, and Dom DeLuise. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you don't want anything ruined, please turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. Aaron, when was the first time you saw the film, and what did you think? I saw it when I was a kid, because I think, you know, like like many young cinephiles, Gene Wilder was a fascinating actor to behold. What did I think? I don't remember what I thought. I thought I, I liked it. I didn't love it. And and reflection, I really challenged my own taste as a kid, you know, to a degree, because I don't know if it holds up as well as I would like it to. I can't remember exactly when I saw it, probably late 1980s. I would guess, as I mentioned in the last episode, I kind of got more interested in Sherlock Holmes based on the Granada series uh, starring Jeremy Brett, at which point... I kind of assiduously tracked down as many Sherlock Holmes uh, TV shows and films as I could to watch every possible incarnation of the character. So it was probably late 1980s. And what'd you think? I enjoyed it. It's clearly uh, at variance with the vast majority of Sherlock Holmes output. You don't have, there's not a lot, especially, you know, recently, a lot of Sherlock Holmes comedies. There were a lot of Sherlock Holmes parodies at the turn of the 20th century. And by that, I mean, our, you know, 19th to 20th. But in the last, you know, 50, 60 years, it's been this film. It's been the uh, Dudley Moore, Peter Cook, Hound of the Baskervilles. Uh, it's been Without a Clue with Michael Caine and ben, ben Kingsley. And then it was Holmes and Watson with Will Ferrell. Um, of all of those, this, I think, is the comedy that works the best. Really? Yeah, although I do like Without okay. a Clue. Well, I, I, Yeah, I would put Without a Clue ahead of this one. But This is a very affectionate film. That's the best word I can apply uh, to it. It's very affectionate in its consideration of uh, the character of Sherlock Holmes. This was a first-time watch for me for doing it for the show. It was one of those that I'd had on my watch list forever. I might have seen parts of it when I was... Just a tyke, though, that I might have been thinking of like World's Greatest Lover, another uh, Gene Wilder film. Um, I was a huge Gene Wilder fan when I was younger. I don't know how this one slipped by me, but watch The Frisco Kid, of course, you know, the two big ones, Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein. But this one just, I hadn't watched it. And I'm not sure if I like it or not. I, I, like the idea of them taking the three Arthur Conan Doyle stories, the adventure of the empty house, the adventure of the naval treaty and the adventure of the second stain and stitching those together. Cause I've listened to all three of those and there are a lot of similarities, especially between naval treaty where you've got a treaty being stolen and then second stain where you have a letter being stolen. So Taking those, combining those, also mixing in some empty house in there. I was like, okay, that's really smart the way that you're putting these three things together. I just don't know if the humor necessarily works and it feels a little kind of slapped together at times. And I'm just like, maybe it's because this is Gene Wilder's first directing attempt, but it just doesn't hold together that well. Like the Madeline Kahn character is interesting because she is just the definition of a duplicitous woman because she's lying through the entire thing. And just when you think she's not, no, she actually was lying about something else to the point where I do appreciate 
whenever Wilder just starts yelling at her and calling her a liar or just like repeating the same question over and over again until she finally tells him a version of the truth. Now then, precisely what is it that you want of me? Well, I have this friend. Liar! <laughs> well, essentially, I mean, she's Irene Adler is this version of it. And then, you know, you've got, was it Marty Feldman plays basically this, <laughs> the comedy's version of of Watson and Wilder is just doing his take on Holmes. So he's basically just spinning off his own take of Sherlock Holmes as associated characters rather than making fun of the characters themselves, because I, I think they didn't want to make fun of Sherlock Holmes at the time. I agree. The humor is not consistent. And I think that's the problem. It goes so far left field and then it comes back and it's a little bit more layered, a little more nuanced. And then it goes just crazy again. And then they're hopping. They're always hopping. And it's just like, I don't know what this is doing here. I feel like you just wanted to throw everything and see what sticks. And I don't know if it sticks so much. I don't, I don't like dislike the movie, but I definitely, you know, after I finished it, I'm like, what was I thinking as a kid? Other than boy, when I was a kid, I really just, I was open to anything. <laughs> you don't have that critical lens, but still appreciate Madeline Kahn for everything she gives. She, she's still the best thing that, that this movie has going for it. She's amazing period. And she's amazing in this film. I love her in this film and she is, I mean, she's comedic. She can sing. She's just terrific. I think, you know, we should, we should emphasize that this is not a movie about Sherlock Holmes. Although Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson are in the film, but they are kind of very much background characters. Sometimes all you see dipping into the frame is a pipe of Sherlock Holmes to let you know that he's keeping on top of the activities of his younger brother. Why it's called Smarter Brother, I'm not sure, because he's clearly, you know, as you said, a bit of adult. He's not irony. as Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. I would assume it's irony. But it definitely thinks he's smarter. Yeah. And I, for me, the, the appeal of the film is is the kind of charming interplay between Gene Wilder, Madeline Kahn, and Marty Feldman. Mm -hmm. There are three people, three actors that have uh, worked together previously. They enjoy each other's company. They play off each other really well. Could it be sharper and, I guess, a little more coherent? Yeah. But to me, it was like I felt like I was watching three friends with a $2 million budget fooling around for 95 minutes. So yeah. <laughs> I was sent on board. That would be part of the reason why I, I struggle with it. And I feel like it's not consistent. I wonder if Wilder was just, like I said, throwing everything to the wall and seeing what sticks because I, I don't feel like it's coherent throughout the film. And there's, there's large sections of the movie where I'm like, what is this even about? <laughs> like, is it still the movie that it's supposed to be? Or are we just, Wilder's doing a, a kind of a, a parody of different things. It was just kind of all over the map in, in many ways. It doesn't mean that it's bad. It's just not, I don't think it's a very consistent film across the board. Well, I think he's he's riffing on, the same as he did with young Frankenstein. I'll leave the correct pronunciation to you guys. <laughs> he's taking a, I'm going to take a classic literary figure and I'm going to ignore it. And I'm going to focus on his unknown relative. And it's the same basic setup. I'm not going to talk about Victor Frankenstein. I'm going to talk about you know, relative of his and same thing here. I'm not going to talk about Sherlock Holmes and I'm going to be able to make a comedy out of it. And it's a really interesting idea in both instances. I think all told young Frankenstein is a more successful movie from beginning to end. But do I think this has its moments? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I do. Oh, it has its moments. I, I would agree with you on that. I just like, like young Frankenstein where a Frankenstein, damn it, works as a whole 
And and this is more like sections because there are moments where I'm like, all right, that was really funny. That was really clever. That was. And then there's other moments where I'm like, what is ha- are we hopping again? <laughs> the hoppy, there's so much hoppy, but it was interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the plot here. So it opens up with the MacGuffin, this scroll. We never, I don't think we ever know what's in the scroll. He never opens the scroll. It's this guy, Lord Redcliffe, and he comes in and he is practicing what he wants to say to Queen Victoria. So we have another Victorian story here. We saw her last week taking a look at the submarine. Here she is handing Lord Redcliffe this scroll. And that sets up basically what our MacGuffin for this movie is going to be. After that, we go into the actual Holmes and Watson, as you mentioned. And this is probably one of my favorite parts is when this hulking guy comes to the door and Holmes has these signs already at the ready and says that there's a six foot three maniac at the door. And just the way that Watson gives us. Christ. And then it's like the next card says act naturally. <laughs> and they, they also introduce Bessie Bellwood, the young music hall sing- singer. So we're going to get that though to talk about Sherlock Holmes and Sigerson Holmes and who's smarter and who's not. I don't know if Sherlock doesn't know that Bessie Bellwood has been dead for 12 years and that Madeline Kahn's character, Jenny is using a alias or not, but just kind of let that slide. But yes, he wants to pass on some less urgent assignments to Sigerson Holmes, his younger brother. We know Mycroft, who doesn't make an appearance in this, but we do have Sigerson, who has been racked with jealousy of his older brother. And rather than Sherlock, he calls him Sherlock Holmes. I love that. And I do love that. That's really good. And we get a pretty early introduction to Orville Stanley Sacker, the character being played by Marty Feldman. And I like that he's selling a newspaper, the Red Herrings Daily. Some good stuff in here, like not, you know, hilarious, but some pretty good stuff here. I do want to quick aside when, you know, how he's introducing that he has a brother and Watson's like, you never mentioned he had a brother. He's like, I never mentioned it. I had Minecraft, Minecraft until it was necessary or whatever. I like that because that, that does work for the character of Sherlock Holmes. Like it really does. He isn't running around having deep philosophical conversations about his family. You know, it's just not the character. So I did like that touch. And I, I would say the opening is, is really calculated to appeal to fans of Sherlock Holmes because Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson are played by Douglas Wilmer and he was Sherlock Holmes in the uh, BBC TV series of the 1960s. And his Watson is Thorley Walters, who had already played Sherlock Holmes twice previously. And two years after this film, he was Dr. Watson again in an episode of Silver Blaze with Christopher Plummer as Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> and, you know, the name of Marty Feldman's character, Orville Sacker, well, if you look at the actual manuscript of the very first Sherlock Holmes story, A Study in Scarlet, Arthur Conan Doyle had written out, well, Sharonford Holmes was his first idea. That got crossed out for Sherlock. And Dr. Watson was going to be Ormond Sacker. And here it's Orville Sacker. So that's that's some fair, you know, fairly deep minutia that, you know, Sherlock Holmes fans, they eat that up. It's like he knows the character. And and and, and Gene Wilder himself said he loves Sherlock Holmes. He reads oh, yeah. all the stories every seven years. So it's a very it's a very affectionate uh, film in many ways. 
Well, even his name, Sigerson, isn't that a uh, alias that Sherlock Holmes took? After Sherlock Holmes threw Professor Moriarty off the Reichenbach Falls and was apparently dead, he went on the so-called hiatus and uh, assumed the name of Sigerson, a Norwegian explorer, which he mentions that to Watson when he comes back in The Adventure of the Empty House. Trivia that, you know, most people watching the movie will have no idea where that comes from, but for Sherlock Holmes fans, it's uh, like an Easter egg to be, you know, uncovered just for you. I seem to remember that they play into that Sigerson name in one of the Nicholas Meyer books, that it's kind of that lost chapter between Reichenbach and coming back for the empty house. And we get to see him in Paris. I think it's the one that's basically Sherlock Holmes meets the Phantom of the Opera. I think it's that story. We mentioned the other thing I think Sherlock Holmes fans get a laugh for, you know, that tickles them is that Professor Moriarty, he's a mathematics professor. Right. And in the, fi- in the film, you see that he is entirely incompetent. If he, can't, he can't do basic division. And, yeah. and, you know, that's, you know, that's played for laughs as well. Him in front of a blackboard, the very first time we see him and it's what four plus four equals nine, all the wrong calculations. Russia bids 625 pounds. Good thing I'm a math professor. <laughs> 7,000. 7,000 rubles. French francs. Hey, Franks. Of course. Get the daily paper. France bid 7,000 French francs. What's the franc going for today? Uh, the franc is 11.18. The franc is 11.18 to the pound. So I simply put down 11.18. Oh, Christ, how do you do this? Well, did you put down 11.18? Oh, sure. I wouldn't know even to put down 11.18. What I'm asking you, idiot, is whether you multiply or divide. Divide. Are you sure? Yes. I'll kill you if you screw this up. Now then, we simply divide 11.18 into 7,000. What do I do with the decimal point? You move the decimal point two places to the right. You mean I divide 1,118 into 7,000? 700,000. What? Well, you add two zeros to the 7,000 to make up for moving the decimal point two places to the right. Well, what the hell did we move the decimal point for in the first place? To make it easier. I was really glad... To see Roy Kinnear as his his assistant, Roy Kinnear, for folks listening, he is mostly known for people of my generation as Veruca Salt's father. So we've got this nice connection with Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I always screw up those. And the good one, not the Tim Burton one, the good one. He's great. And he's a very idiosyncratic looking actor. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys are aware, but he actually died making a movie. Yeah. A few a few years after this, he was thrown off a horse making yet another Three Musketeers film oh. and di- and died from his injuries. Well, we didn't. Yeah. We definitely didn't need that either. For no, no. No. He's one of many bald men that Moriarty surrounds himself with. I don't know if that's supposed to be a joke in here because there's the six foot three guy who then we see him like selling... I can't remember what he's selling at the train station. And he eventually, there's this like lady in the tiger scenario where, but Moriarty opens up two doors. You hear a tiger at one, you hear this woman at the other. Of course, the guy goes through the door that he thinks has the lady in it, but it ends up being the tiger. And we get this little 
audio cameo from Mel Brooks there, which is kind of nice. And then he's quickly replaced by another bald guy. And then Roy Kinnear doesn't have all of his hair either. So I'm just like, is this supposed to be a joke that he only likes to have bald assistants or I'm not exactly sure. Well, studies have shown that bald men are more intelligent than hair. (laughs) Was it only bald guys that participated in that analysis? I I, I think they're the the ones who conducted the study. Yes. Yeah. It was peer reviewed, but nobody had hair in that peer review. It was quite odd. Nicholas Smith is the six foot three guy. And then John Hollis is the other one, the one who is there with the gun at the end. And John Hollis also known for my generation as being Lobot from the empire strikes back. So good to see him in another silent role. I think if I ever heard John Hollis's voice, I would probably freak out because he only plays silent characters for me. He's got a good look. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Great look runs with it. Yeah. You know, we talked about the title earlier on if, if if it's ironic or not, right? There are many moments peppered throughout where he is genius, just like his brother. And then there's other moments where the character is a complete imbecile. Like he just does not, he's got too, too much hubris for, for his talents, really. So where, where do you land on him as an overall character by the time the film ends? Like, do you think he is up there with Sherlock Holmes or just a luckier version of an imbecile? A lot of sheer luck so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. He's not, he's not nearly as bright as Sherlock Holmes, but he's more human. Oh. You know, he's, he's, he, he falls in love with Madeline Kahn's character. Um, Can't blame him. Yeah. I think that's, you know, part of the appeal of Sherlock Holmes is in many respects, the automaton quality that he has. He's unmoved by human emotion. He is a calculating machine. And obviously, there's very many riffs on that that, that try to put different spins on it. But uh, Gene Wilder's, he's, he's not going to be as bright as his older brother, but he's a more three-dimensional human being in, in some respects. And that he's trying and that he's also capable of affection and, and, and fear and, you know, the emotions that are kind of rigidly excluded from Sherlock Holmes in, on a general basis. When I talked about bald guys, and there's another bald man in this movie I forgot about, which is... The guy who keeps coming to the door, and that's one way that we see that Sigerson isn't as smart as Holmes, because rather than him knowing who's at the door, much like his brother just did, instead he's just like, oh, there's going to be a knock at the door, and it's going to be Miss Bessie Bellwood, and no, it's this really interesting-looking gentleman who I think he like is the apartment manager or whatever, and he just keeps coming to the door every time that Sigerson thinks it's going to be her. But we quickly get her introduction, and I do like when she introduces herself and he just screams liar right in her face. And then we get this whole, like, musical test where he's singing lyrics, and then she has to pick up the lyrics and continue with those. And Well, I don't think I know that one. Pity! The next time you decide to impersonate a musical singer who's been dead for 12 and a half years, I suggest you learn her full repertoire. Won't you come in, Miss Liar? You, my, what a charming flat. That was kind of delightful to me. And then also when it's him serving her tea and she's just like, no, no, thank you. And just takes the teacup and then, you know, milk. No, I'm good. And takes the milk, you know, sugar. No, no, no. And takes the sugar. It's stupid, but it's very funny to me. And yeah, you're talking about that chemistry between the three characters. I mean, when those three are all in the same room at the same time and, you know, going back and forth, 
I really like those moments, though sometimes they're just pure silliness. Everything that works in this movie, she's part of, as far as I'm concerned. I feel like Gene Wilder is hit and miss, and so is Marty Feldman. I agree with you. When they're together, it works much better. When they're separate, it doesn't work as well. But if Madeline Kahn is there, I'm in, you know, at, at any point throughout the film. I just feel like she understood the assignment better than everybody else, in my opinion. Well, we should mention that part of Marty Feldman's character is that, it's aside from, uh, I don't know what you would call it, a phonographic memory, memory, audiographic memory, He's got complete recall of every conversation he's ever heard, and he kind of whacks himself on the side of the head to, you know, start a bulky <laughs> tape recorder. He's a, he's a skipping record. Yeah, so that's yeah. that's good. And quite honestly, uh, for as, as as you were saying, like when they're all three in the room together, is there any actor that you could name that's better for reaction shots than Marty Feldman? Oh no, he's no. just perfect. Um, so that's great because yeah, there's a funny interplay between Holmes and and Jenny Hill, and then we get even cut to Marty Feldman's interesting response, and it's it's funny, yeah. His reaction to when she says that she wrote this spicy letter to a young paramour and said that she wanted to touch his winkle. Touch his winkle. Well, yeah, uh, we've all been there, haven't we? I wish I had more letters that way. But yeah, so kind of playing into this musical test thing is all of a sudden we break into a rendition of this old-timey song, The Kangaroo Hop, which apparently is a real song, and I have found several versions of it now, so that was interesting to be able to track that down. What, but What a sad well you went down. That is my life. All the songs that he tests her with are music hall songs from yeah. the 19th century. Yeah, and for a while there, it feels like this movie could be a musical, because there's that. And then we, you know, take a little bit of a break, go to Moriarty, meet him. And then we quickly get a musical sequence where we get pretty much full song. And then there's going to be another one within a few scenes. So I was like, oh, okay. And I was kind of almost hoping that he would keep it up and that it would be every few scenes we would get a different musical number because the theater is huge in this. There's, you know, her as a musical singer. And then there's the Dom DeLuise character, who's kind of more of an opera singer, but then she's also an opera singer in that part as well. Yeah, it just, it works. And I was like, oh, well, this is kind of cool that we're going to have these songs through there, but I don't think it's consistent enough to really consider this a musical because there's probably, what, like four songs through the whole thing? It's like a movie with music, not a musical. And I will add one of the things that I really liked about this film is the fencing. Oh, because in the first Sherlock Holmes short story, Watson goes through, here's the stuff Holmes is good at. Here's the stuff he's miserable at. He's an expert fencer. And out of the 14 Sherlock Holmes films that Basil Rathbone made, he didn't fence once. And he's, as an actor, an enormously adept fencer. He fences in Robin Hood. He fences in Captain Blood. He fences in The Mark of Zorro. And they never let him pick up a foil saber or a pay. Gene Wilder was actually a really good fencer. In fact, he taught fencing. He was a fencing tutor. He was school champion when he went to uh, the Bristol Old Vic Theater in, in England. And so, yeah, he really wanted to you know, showcase his own fencing ability. In fact, um, I believe the music that he picked for the majority of the film, the background music, was he wanted something that sounded like uh, the Errol Flynn Robin Hood uh, from the 1930s. So that's great. You'd like, you'd like to see the hero in action. 
And it's smart that he's playing to his strengths. It, this feels, I don't want to say that this is a vanity project, but this feels very near and dear to Gene Wilder's heart between his love of Sherlock Holmes and his love of fencing, his abilities for fencing. I'm sure he had a hand in picking out the songs that were playing in the, for the all the musical sequences. It just feels very much like he was so invested in this film. Well, I mean, he did a lot of off-Broadway work, so, I mean, he, he definitely loves theater. <clears throat> he's a theater kid, and he's he's showcasing that here. I think the whole movie, a lot of, a lot of like, is what you're saying. It's just him playing to what he loves, writing what he loves, because a lot of it doesn't make sense in the Sherlock Holmes world, even if it is by proxy, but it works because it's Gene Wilder's world. It's more his world than it is really Sherlock Holmes in many respects. Well, I watched, to rewatch the film, I watched it with his uh, audio commentary. Right. And at one point he says, and it's almost a wistful expression the way he says it. He just says, I love this film. Mm-hmm. Sweetness, the sweetness of it. It's his movie. If he wants to love it, he's more than welcome to it. The Moriarty character, played by Leo McKern, he's got so many interesting quirks. This whole thing, how he does this like, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure exactly where that's coming from. His robot or automaton that he has that is a priest behind a confessional screen and a little card pops out and says absolved every time he goes in and confesses. I like that. All the time for his crimes. And he's got that whole monologue about how he has to do nasty things every 24 minutes. (laughs) Here's why I'm such a master villain. Here's everything I go through. It's very Bondian in that respect. And there's weird moments, too, where, like, he doesn't like his assistant to be taller than him, where he's on this raised platform, and when he comes down off the platform, he makes the guy, like, hunch down so that he's shorter than he is. There's just so many interesting things that he's doing as Moriarty, and he seems to be having one hell of a time with this. And those scenes with with his assistant are great, with uh, Roy Kinnear. But his scenes with Tom DeLuise, oh my God, I was really having a great time with that. I mean, Tom DeLuise is kind of like, they talk about Gambetti at the beginning or near the beginning when she's talking about how she was blackmailed for the spicy letters, the winkle letters. It's not until way later in the film that he shows up to the point where I was just like, who is this character? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Took me. It was actually my second viewing where I was like, "Oh, okay, he's Gambetti, and he, all right, I got it." So, because she kind of like they, they set up a lot of the plot early on, and then we kind of meander off and we go through like the music hall sequence, and you know, there's the one where she's going to be killed, and there's the sand that's coming out of the sandbag, and. There's Sherlock Holmes in the front row, and he just keeps picking up sand and throwing it in Sigerson's face, like, hey, pay attention to this. Because really, like you said before, Sherlock is through so many of these moments in this film. Sometimes, yeah, it's just like a pipe or a shadow of a pipe, but he's there in that front row, and we get a good glimpse at him. And I do have to say, between that and then later on, when we see him playing the violin in the park, the makeup on him looks really good because I didn't recognize him as Douglas Wilmer. They kept it very indistinguishable from other people in the area. The only way you notice him is because of the pipe. That's what the clear giveaway, which I thought was funny because you know Moriarty's there and he's still got his pipe, so he's not really too worried about being given away. But his brother doesn't notice him because he's a you know adult, like we talked about. 
doesn't know what the hell's going on when that sand keeps. I love the sand when it hits him in the face. He's just like, oh, well, I definitely got the impression with Moriarty and Gambetti. I have no way of establishing this, but think felt like the instructions from Gene Wilder were: here's the basic outline of the scene, just have fun with it. Yeah, and and they had a lot of fun with it, especially the scene where they're kind of mangling each other's faces. Yes, it's two actors. The best actors are the ones that are willing to go for it. They were both willing to go for it. Gene Wilder said Dom DeLuise was the funniest human being he'd ever known. So it made sense that he cast them as, as Gambetti. It's a small part compared to the overall film, but he makes the most of it. You got to admit that. He's, he's memorable. Yeah, he's definitely memorable. Yeah, him coming in and just spewing all that fake-sounding Italian, and when he starts humping the chair. My God, that was, that's our introduction to him, and I'm like, what is happening? He, is he humping a chair? He sure is. And then he like checks the score. He's like, oh yeah, that's a good. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this was you doing this. Okay. All right. Now I get it. Yeah. Side tangent. There's a lot of weird sexual stuff here where they're like funneling her breasts over and over again throughout the film. He's humping the chair. There's a lot of weird seventies, but the ass cheeks where they're, <laughs> where they're grabbing each other's asses in the as they're fully exposed and they're just massaging the buttocks, I'm like, okay, this this is definitely a 70s movie, for sure. I did appreciate in that audio commentary how he was talking about how they had to make up their asses, you know, like make them a little pinker and nicer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm making prettier, a little sexier. Right. Well, for context, for people that may not have seen the film, <laughs> you know, Seagerson Holmes and Orman Sacker, Orville Sacker, sorry, are dressed in tuxedos they're dressed to the you know for a very fancy party but end up in a death trap that ends up shearing the back off of their suits which they're unaware of and that's the comedy is they enter into this very fancy dress ball there's music playing and everybody slowly realizes that they are completely bare from the back of their necks down to their knees and they're the only ones who don't realize it Uh and the orchestra conductor is quite taken with uh (laughs) You know, the bare-ass gentleman presenting themselves to him. Mm-hmm. So it, it works well. It works well. So when did they notice? Like first squeeze, second squeeze? When do you, when do you feel comfortable that they, <laughs> they know that they're bare-assed at this moment? When Sacker introduces himself to Seegerson Holmes and Seegerson is blowing him off, he kind of placates him by saying, I really appreciated your handling of the case of the three testicles. You're familiar with the three testicles? <laughs> Jenny can only tell the truth when she when she's sexually aroused. Right, yeah, there's a, a lot of material in that vein, played for comedic effect. Yeah, and there's a couple good action sequences in there as well. There's the the whole thing on the carriage where you've got the two carriages that are coming up and both threatening. And that was nice to see Mr. Deltoid from Clockwork Orange as one of the carriage drivers. As I'm looking at him, I'm just like where do I know this guy's face? And then I realized he was Aubrey Morris. And I was like, still, where do I know this guy's face? And finally I was like, oh, it's Mr. Deltoid. And he doesn't even, I don't think he's even got a line. I think he does it all silent in this, this role of this coach driver. And the other coach driver is equally threatening. And then that, that bizarro fight with uh, Roy Kinnear and uh, Gene Wilder on top of the carriages and the giant hand or the giant glove and the giant boot that they have. <laughs> and you get that nice button on the scene when he raises his, his giant hand up and says, taxi. There are some good moments in this. And especially like getting 
kicked in the nuts with a giant boot as well, which was nice. You can never go wrong with fart jokes or blows to the groin. There are some strange moments in that action scene, like how Madeline Kahn, Jenny Hill, won't scream, that she just keeps saying the word scream. That felt very odd. I was like, okay, but I can let that slide. Of course, when they, when she gets nervous, she starts to sing. When Orville gets nervous, he starts spewing out facts. So it just becomes this whole cacophony inside of the ca- the carriage. Not everything rings as nice as other things is what I'm trying to say. Well, I feel like that's where you really notice the difference between Gene Wilder's writing and Mel Brooks's writing. He's definitely trying to emulate Mel Brooks. He really is throughout this entire movie. And there are moments when he kind of captures it, the giant feet will definitely as part of it. Then there's moments where it's just like, that just does not work. It just doesn't work. And it feels forced. So, And I think that's that's where it's inconsistent in terms of the tone. It really just... He's not as masterful with this kind of material as Mel Brooks is. Again, it's his first time out of the gate with directing. Absolutely. No, absolutely. He had, absolutely. had written stuff, and I did like the whole story of how Mel Brooks is like, first you're going to write, then you're going to want to direct so that you can protect your own writing. And it was just a matter of how soon until you start directing Gene, because I know you're going to do that. And it was kind of nice that Mel Brooks seemed so supportive of Gene Wilder and just you know, kind of like pushing the baby bird out of the, the nest. Which you got to do sometimes so you can fly. Audiences liked this. I mean, oh, yeah. this, was, this was released end of 1975 as a holiday movie. Like I said, I think the budget was a little over $2 million. I think it made about $20 million. It was way, way more successful than The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, which we mm-hmm. talked about. I think it only made $9 million in the in North America. You mean worldwide? And I would say, like, of the films that we're considering... Private Life, Murder by Decree, and The 7% Solution, this is the palate cleanser. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a completely different tone, a completely different film. It's not presenting Holmes as a broken, disenchanted, disillusioned anti-hero. It is what it is. It's its own little entity and probably not going to go down in the pantheon of great films of the 20th century, but I found it enjoyable for what it was setting out to try to do. In two weeks, when we're talking about Murder by Decree, we're going to be like, where's the humor? Why is it got to be so dark? They try to add some humor to it, especially in the relationship between Holmes and Watson. But yeah, it's hard to add humor to Jack the Ripper stories. Yeah. But yeah, we've talked about a lot of this stuff. We eventually find out that Jenny is not just a music hall singer, but she is the fiance, Lord Redcliffe, the man who got his document stolen. If you remember... Way back when I was talking about that document, here it is again. <laughs> Holmes, Sigerson Holmes finds out about that, really takes the wind out of his sails. But they kind of patch stuff up pretty quickly on a little boat ride that they have. We've got Sigerson and Orville breaking into Gambetti's place. That's where we meet Dom DeLuise, just this living cartoon character. And then, yeah, when Moriarty comes in and I, the, when we initially see Moriarty come in and the way that Gambetti greets him and you couldn't get two more different personalities the way that these guys are going, Moriarty has this great like twitch on the side of his face where it just looks like he's about to explode and you just see like, looks like his muscles are just quivering there. And I was just like, 
I am so impressed that the actor could do that because he just looks like he wants to snap so hard. And when he grabs that vase and holds it up over in Betty's head, I, that's such a great moment. And then just looks at, Oh, what a lovely face. <laughs> He's a great actor. I mean, Oh yeah. I mean, this is before his rumple of the Bailey years, but no, he's great. I agree with you. That little mouth twitching, because oh. I'm thinking, boy, how do you do that? Right. You know, I don't think I could do that on a bet, but it works just great. Or when fucking Dom DeLuise grabs those little scissors and starts trimming Moriarty's nose hairs. I'm glad he lost that toupee, by the way, because for a big portion of when we first meet uh, Dom DeLuise, I, I, all I kept thinking was Eddie from Rocky Horror Picture Show. I'm like, is that <laughs> it's so meatloaf-like? And his visual appearance. But then this toupee comes up. I'm like, ah, there we go. There's Dom DeLuise. And then, yeah, we're back at the music hall and there's going to be this whole like, exchange where somebody's going to come up to Gambetti and sing, why don't we all drink some very sexy wine? And that's going to be the, the clue to Gambetti to hand over the scroll, the, the Lord Redcliffe scroll. And, you know, there's the infiltration of Sigerson. But there's also a great Albert Finney cameo in here where he just turns right to us, right in the audience, and asks, is this rotten or wonderfully brave? I love I love that that's a phrase. Why don't we all drink some very sexy wine? It's so good. And that they sing it like three times. <laughs> it's so awkward each and every time. It just gets more and more awkward. That's the absurdity I love. If you look at the actual lyrics of operas, they sound magnificent if they're in Italian or German, but then when you look at the actual words, you're like, well, that's, that's really lame. That's yeah. really lame lyrics. So they just put it out there in English. Why not? And we get a nice sword fight going on between Moriarty and Sigerson. So that's very nice as well. It was fairly well choreographed for a, for a comedy like this too. Yeah. I thought it was really well done. And it was nice that again, we rely on the sword play. It's not like we set up all this fencing through the movie and then they have a duel with guns or something at the end. So thank goodness they actually carry through with that. And they're both very good fencers, or at least uh, Moriarty can fake it really well. Thank God the bicycling robot paid off. There was actually a fencer inside the robot. But yeah, Wilder did his own well, fencing. I didn't think it was a real robot. I'll tell you what I liked about the, the scene on the ledge with Moriarty is if you are familiar with Sherlock Holmes at all, the original stories or the or a lot of the films, Moriarty tends to plunge to his death a lot. <laughs> um, now, this is a comedy, so he doesn't actually die, but plunging off of high precipices into rivers or the waterfalls, that's kind of Moriarty's shtick. That he, that's how he dies. He's always falling somewhere. Does he die a lot? Oh, yeah. But he gets brought back a lot, too. Oh, all the you time. Gotta, yeah. You gotta have Moriarty. I mean, that's how he dies in the original story. He dies, he meets Sherlock Holmes at the Reichenbach Falls, mm -hmm. and they tussle, and that's where he ostensibly dies. Yeah. You know, supposedly, that's where Sherlock Holmes died, too, because at that point, Arthur Conan Doyle was sick of Sherlock Holmes. As yeah, he, he wanted said, to go away. He's taking attention away from my better work, therefore, I'm going to kill him. Isn't that ironic? Because this was his best work. <laughs> She's like, accept it, man. It's okay. Accept it. He does eventually, but. Well, he wanted to be known for his historical novels. Yeah, you know, the white, the white Company was what he poured his heart and soul to. He found it irritating. As 
subsequent portrayers of Sherlock Holmes did, Basil Rathbone and William Gillette, that mm-hmm. they kind of locked into this one character that, you know, they'd be walking down the street and strangers would shout at them, hey, Sherlock, how's Watson? Yeah, he found it maddening. And he eventually brought him back to life after 10 years. But yeah, Moriarty tends to fall a lot. Also, like, you know, Robert Down Jr. movies, yep. Sherlock with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch falls a lot. Definitely a different interpretation of Moriarty than we had in the Sherlock TV series. Also a very odd character. The ending of this movie is very odd, and I'm glad that Wilder talks about it on the commentary as well, just that he didn't really care for the original way that it ended, but he wanted like a little bit more of a punch in there. So we've got Jenny is going to get married to Lord Redcliffe. She meets Sherlock at this park. She has sent him a telegram, it sounds like, that said it was a matter of life and death. And so he rushes to this park, which I thought at first was going to be, I'd ever sent the telegraph, that it was actually Sherlock that had sent the telegraph. And, you know, he was the one trying to like push these two together. But apparently, no, she sent the telegraph and just, I guess, wanted to say goodbye to Sigerson or, you know, that's, or try to get him back at this point. Like I said, it's odd. So they're together. She's like, oh, I have to get married now. She runs off. We've got Holmes and Watson, the real Holmes and Watson there in the park. And Holmes is playing violin. Watson's playing harp, which I never knew that he could do that. A portable harp, which was kind of cool. They are playing like an orchestral version of one of those music hall songs, which I also thought was kind of nice. He's walking away. Sigurdsson's walking away. The music stops. He turns around. There's Jenny. And rather than them just embrace and kiss, and that's the end of the movie, they do a reprise of Kangaroo Hop. Wilder even says, we we shot this well after. Like, you can see the film stock changes. Like, it's not shot where they shot the rest of this movie. They shot it in a park in California, I think he said. And it just suddenly changes. They do this little reprise of Kangaroo Hop, and then it does a quick dissolve to... Jenny and Sigerson embraced and kissing, and then boom, credits, off we go. Kind of got a little bit of whiplash from this ending here, just because of the pacing and the way that we jump into the kangaroo hop, pun intended, and then pull right back out of it to that other ending. It's like he wanted his cake and eat too, but didn't feel like it really flowed together very well. I almost wish that they had shot the, the second ending or the original ending a second time to make those two things marry together a little bit better. The hop is ridiculous, which, you know, fits a lot of, a lot of this movie. The ending is just kind of like, what is happening again? What is happening again? <laughs> I was not a fan of the hop. I wasn't a fan of the first time. I definitely wasn't a fan of it the second time. But I will admit that it is exceptionally well performed. I was pretty impressed with Gene Wilder's flexibility. He's a very fluid performer. I really liked what they were doing with the camera in the earlier part of the hop when the cameras were hopping up and down with them. It's almost like all of them are on trampolines because they're really kind of, it's like, obviously the camera is not locked to Wilder. It's not some sort of snorry cam or something. It's just the cameraman seems to be keeping the right pace with Wilder. I thought that was great. Even though some of the stuff in the movie doesn't work for me personally, and and overall, I think it's it's a decent movie. It's just, I just don't love it or whatever. But 
I admire that he's trying to just be himself. Like he's trying to tell a story. He wants to tell in as weird as he can tell it. And he's totally confident in his version of it. That's something that does come through for every frame is that he's confident in his version of it. Whether we are or not, he doesn't care. I admire that. Well, I, I would agree that ending is a little jarring. And all I can say is speaking of somebody that writes plays, screenplays, things like that, you got to end it. <laughs> like, ah, gotta end. Gotta stop. Stop doing it now. So some and some endings are more graceful than others. So you don't know what other forces were at play. You need a happy ending. You need the hero with a girl, and they accomplish that. There might have been given more space and time, a more graceful way to accomplish it, but they accomplish it in the end. And that that once again emphasizes that he's not his brother, because that wouldn't happen with his brother. Uh-huh. Have, been, have either of you guys heard of a film, it's old silent film, called The Mystery of the Leaping Fish with Douglas Fairbanks Jr.? No, I have not. It's worth watching. It's available on YouTube. And it just reminded me of like the full of hop thing. The Mystery of uh, the Leaping Fish, it features, it's kind of a character, a combination of Sherlock Holmes and a popular American detective of the time named Craig Kennedy. And it's all about drugs. And Sherlock Holmes spends a good portion of the film hopped up on, on cocaine. And they, they literally have that in the title cards. And he is constantly snorting or sniffing or injecting and hopping around. It's, I want to say, about 25 minutes long. And it's a, it's a bizarre little film. But what's cool about it is it actually exists. I mean, it's from 1916, and most films from that era are no longer with us, but you can just fire that up on YouTube anytime you want. If you want to see Douglas Fairbanks Jr. playing a comedic version of Sherlock Holmes or senior, sorry, did I say, senior? yeah, senior. I had never heard of that one. I might have to check that out, especially because we're going to be talking a lot about cocaine next week, folks. Can you ever have enough cocaine talk? Cocaine is a hell of a drug. There were tons of silent films that used Sherlock Holmes. Because they could get away with it. You didn't have to pay Arthur Conan Doyle. And they just, you know, the Flea of the Baskervilles was another one. Uh, and they all, you know, they renamed the character Padlock Jones, Padlock Bones, Sherlock Oomph, or whatever. But there were tons of those. And, you know, they're ostensibly Sherlock Holmes, but not really. They're just riffs. They're sound the theme of a, a detective. And the nice thing about Sherlock Holmes is he's so identifiable. You get that hat, you get the magnifying glass, you get the pipe. Everybody knows what that means. And so he was in a lot of parodies, a lot of parodies, plays and films at the turn of the 20th century. I do a podcast about Columbo and, you know, Columbo's got the cigar and the coat and then they add things, you know, dog, the car, they continually like build him out. But yeah, it feels like. I don't know if this is true or not, but it feels like Sherlock Holmes came out of the womb fully formed with all of those things. You've got the Inverness coat, you've got the violin, you've got the cocaine and the fencing you mentioned. You know, it just feels like there are so many trappings to him that, yeah, you can just have like, like we were saying in this movie, sometimes you just see a silhouette of a pipe and you're just like, oh, well, there's Sherlock Holmes. I have just. You don't even have to have the actor. You just have the symbol representing the actor. Well, those those iconic symbols associated with him, that, that was built up. Obviously, the original, the stories, he's going to have a magnifying glass. The hat was the creation of the illustrator of the original Sherlock Holmes stories because he had his own 
Deerstalker and put the character in the Deerstalker. And the pipe itself, that was a creation of the actor William Gillette, who wanted a big curved pipe because he liked to talk with the pipe in his mouth. And he wanted the audience to be able to see his mouth. He's a stage actor. So it was this kind of gradual buildup of all the symbols we associate with this character. Yeah, I never would have known that. It's kind of like how you think about Superman and the Daily Planet, and then you realize, oh, the Daily Planet was made up whole cloth by the people that put him on the radio. Nothing to do with comic books at the time. I associate everything with Superman with Zack Snyder. And his... Oh, well, that's what you have to do. His vision. His vision of a perfect world with Superman in it. That's probably the best way to go. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I had to say, you can't mention Superman without mentioning Zack Snyder. It's required by law at this point. Well, I will mention just for trivia's sake that if anyone's interested, the very first Sherlock Holmes movie ever made in 1900 is called Sherlock Holmes Baffled, and it exists. Again, you can fire that up on YouTube and see. It's about 45 seconds long or so. Very short watch, but it's kind of a play. I think it was probably created because William Gillette's play was doing so well in New York, and they just use camera tricks so that a criminal can pop into existence and then out of existence and there's nothing Sherlock Holmes can do. So that's the first Sherlock Holmes movie. Sherlock Holmes baffled in 1900. And just so folks know, like you can try to look this stuff up on IMDb, but Wikipedia is your friend. There's a fantastic site. It's arthur-conan-doyle.com where they have a very comprehensive list of Sherlock Holmes movies, Sherlock Holmes parody, Sherlock Holmes on TV. And that's just one page. This site goes really deep. So if you are enjoying hearing us talk about Sherlock Holmes, this is the site for you if you want to dive deep into Sherlockian lore. There's a gentleman in Florida who keeps a running database of every actor who has ever played Sherlock Holmes. Professional, college, high school, two kids in a park with a video camera. <laughs> I, think, I think he's up to about, I don't know, 8,500. And they're all there with names and photographs if you can track them down. He's, he's as thorough as possible in his devotion to the cause. Wow. And they, on this Arthur Conan Doyle site, they catch things that I never would have thought of. Like, I'm looking at the parody stuff right now. And, of course, there's, like, even tiny little things like, oh, when Joel Gray was on The Muppets, you know, he played a Sherlock knockoff. I didn't realize that in The Name of the Rose that Sean Connery's character was William of Baskerville. And he totally is doing a Sherlock Holmes in that, but having the Baskerville really tips the hat or tips the deerstalker, I should say, to the Holmes character. So I am in sore need of rewatching that film, and this is prompting me. His young acolyte is Adso, A-D-S-O. So yeah, it's Holmes and Watson. In a medieval monastery, yeah. You know, that the creator of that, Berto Echo, he's a, well, semiologist at heart. His whole academic training was related to the study of signs. And that is Sherlock Holmes' the definitive character uh, of mastering reading the world. So he had a really vested interest in the character of Sherlock Holmes, and that's why, yeah, William of Baskerville was his hero. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break and play a preview for next week's show right after these brief messages. 
before the turn of the century, two of the great minds of all time met and began an adventure that history has yet to record. Sherlock Holmes and Sigmund Freud. Together they are their very lives. Universal presents The 7% Solution, Nicholas Meyer's best-selling mystery from the personal memoirs of Dr. John H. Watson. First you must tell me how you guess the details of my life with such uncanny accuracy. I never guess. It is an appalling habit and destructive to the logical faculty. This is wonderful. Come on, The 7% Solution, revealing for the first time the vile and destructive habit that almost destroyed the world's greatest detective. The true identity of Sherlock Holmes' arch-nemesis, Professor James Moriarty. You startled me. Come on, Watson! And the extraordinary circumstances surrounding the hitherto unknown affair be known as the adventure of the 7% solution. Dr. Freud. Nicole Williamson is Sherlock Holmes. Alan Arkin is Dr. Sigmund Freud. Robert Duvall is Dr. John H. Watson. Vanessa Redgrave is the lovely Lola Devereaux. Jeremy Kemp is the Baron von Leinsdorf. Joel Gray is the possibly fictitious Lowenstein. Say yes! And Sir Lawrence Olivier is Professor Moriarty. Persecuting me is the only way I can put it. Persecuting you? I see everything. I am on the case and you have placed me there. Now you must follow my instructions. Sherlock Holmes' most baffling mystery. Sigmund Freud's most curious case. The year's most intriguing motion picture. Where was this train originally heading? This is Dresden. It is now the Orient Express. There has been no explanation for the 7% solution until now. That's right. Our Sherlock Holmes month continues with a look at the 7% solution. Until then, what's the latest with you, Aaron? The Hollywood Outsiders, my my normal weekly movie and TV podcast where we review films and discuss in a, our own zany way modern television and film. And we just got, I just got back from South by Southwest along with my co-host Amanda. So there's an episode of that that should be coming out where we talk over 25 films and the festival itself that we saw, including John Wick Chapter 4, Evil Dead Rise as part of that conversation, and, and a lot of smaller films as well. And then presenting Hitchcock, which I do on a monthly basis where we look at every single film in Alfred Hitchcock's catalog, including his silent films, which we were talking about silent films earlier. So we were almost done with every silent film as well. And that's presenting Hitchcock. And David, how about yourself? Uh, I've got uh, one. I've written three Sherlock Holmes plays. One of them is premiering <laughs> in New Zealand in a couple of weeks. I'm, I'm doing a presentation on Sherlock Holmes at a Sherlock Holmes symposium in Lovely date in Ohio at the end of the month. And if anyone's interested, yeah, the Sherlock material that I've got is all available on Amazon, books, fiction books, nonfiction books. You know, I I wrote a two-volume nonfiction book called Sherlock Holmes, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. If you want to know more about Sherlock Holmes than anyone has a right to know. Most of the information is accurate. So 80% at least. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows I work on. They are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Well, if you can do the cha-cha, I know 
Wind you ever gonna stop? Well, wind. Pay- 